Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Tonight we consider verses 6 and 7. Romans chapter 6, and tonight we'll, we'll consider verses 6 and 7. I think it was probably in the month of May 1983, I was watching some sporting event, I certainly don't recall what it was, and a, and a commercial for Porsche automobiles came on, and there was a Porsche 928S, one of the finest sports cars in the world that was being advertised on that commercial, and they were buzzing down, the, uh, down a wonderful German road in the rain, and I'll never forget that at the end of this commercial, the stunt driver, who, you know, they always say, don't try this at home, the driver does a 180 and then stops and points the other direction. And having more financial resources at the time than I had since, I said, i got to get me one of those and went out the next day and bought one. And it was a wonderful and incredible car, and I enjoyed it while I had it. It was stolen on our wedding day while Cindy and I were getting married out of the church parking lot, but that's a whole other story. Some of you know it, some of you don't. But I also at the same time had a, had a GMC pickup truck, which I enjoyed very much. And in fact, I enjoyed the GMC pickup truck just as much as I enjoyed the Porsche 928 maroon with leather seats, and it would just you know go like nobody's business. Got several tickets in the Porsche. No, I never got a ticket in the, in the pickup truck. But the reason I tell you this story is both of them got me where it was I needed to go. Both of them were reliable transportation. I'll never forget the first time I needed a tune-up on the, in the pickup truck. I have no idea what it cost because it wasn't anything outrageous. You know, at the time, back in 1983, probably cost $7,500. We tuned it up, and here it goes, and it went, went down the road and provided reliable transportation. Again, it got me where I wanted to go and was effective in doing what I had purchased it to do. first time it came up that there was a tune-up that was due on the, the portion, I never forget, it was $900 for a minor tune-up. That was 1983. I was shocked. I thought, good, good night. I could have overhauled the entire GMC pickup truck for that. But I tell you what, once you tune that thing up, and then there, were, there had to be precision craftsmen to work on it, but once you tuned it up, boy, here it went. And you could just you could buzz along at 90 miles an hour. Not that I ever did that, but you could have if you wanted one or two, and it would have seemed like you were going 35 miles an hour. The way that it handled it was absolutely stunning and beautiful. It was an incredible machine. Now, why do I tell you this story? The reason I tell you this story is that we're studying the book of Romans, which is very much like a, to use an analogy, like a Porsche 928 or a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. It's an, it's an incredible work that the Apostle Paul did. Now, it requires, it requires some extra concentration and some extra understanding and some extra patience to really get the job done. Now, other books in the Bible, and I'm not, I'm not denigrating any of these, please. The Holy Spirit's the author of all, but some are very simple to understand. They have great truths, and they're very simple to understand, and they, they get us to where we need to go. The Holy Spirit utilizes those. And then some books are like a, a fine sports car. They, they also get us where, they, where we want to go. But if we ever get it, if we ever can, can put the extra effort in, and it, it may require much more on our parts, much more concentration and focus, uh, it may require that. But once we get it, our lives will never be the same. 
That's the book of Romans. That's why we've spent some time trudging along with this. It seems as though what we've been doing in the last three to four months is we've been going three steps ahead and maybe two steps back, and then another three steps ahead, and then we're circling back and doing two steps back. The reason it seems that way is because that's exactly what we're doing, and that's really what Paul does as he writes this letter. This is incredible theology. It requires some extra effort. But once we get it, I, I promise you, if you'll hang in there with it, it'll be worth your time. Some of us have already studied the book of Romans, some several times over the course of our life. And I say, great, good, wonderful. You've got a background right now. Study it afresh. Listen afresh. Because I, I, pay, I pay careful attention to conversations that I hear going, going around afterwards. And I'm glad to hear people talking about it. But I'm not sure that we're always listening with ears that hear. I think sometimes we have a pre-understanding about what we think some of these passages mean. And then as, as the, the text is taught, we may hear one or two phrases that we catch on and we say, almost subconsciously, we say, well, I got that. And then our attention turns to, you know, homework assignment we have to do or what's going on at, at work tomorrow until the next phrase comes up that we might not have heard yet. I implore you, please listen with fresh ears every time you come. And I can promise you, if you do, when we get through it all, it will be worth it. Now, in the first chapter of Romans, there's an extended introduction. You remember why? Because Paul hadn't met these folks yet, at least not most of them. The church was probably founded by some of his converts, but he didn't know them, so there's a, an extended introduction. Then Paul comes in verses 16 and 17. He comes right to the point and tells us what the whole point of Romans is going to be about, the righteousness of God and how it's obtained by faith. And then in this critical section that sometimes I think we went over it so much that we have forgotten the significance of it, but in 118 through 320, Paul makes the point that all people need a Savior. You remember the three, the three categories of persons? The immoralist needs a Savior. That was fairly obvious to most people. The moralist needs a Savior, which was not so obvious, but Paul says, listen, you look, your, you, you look your nose down upon the immoralist, but guess what? You do the same things. Maybe not exactly the same sins, but you sin as well. And then finally, the third category of person was the Jew needs a Savior. There were Jews in Paul's days, as there is are in our day, that felt like that they were going to heaven because they were racially associated with Abraham. And Paul says, no, you had great advantages being a Jew, you had the oracles of God, in other words, the, what we would call the Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament canon. But even though you had that, you rejected it, and you're trying to get to heaven by works. You need a Savior too. Then in that great verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want you to consider for a moment the theological ramifications of those, just those first few chapters. Paul is making a case that every single person that is alive, that's ever taken a breath on this earth, needs a Savior because, at this point in the text, we have all sinned. Paul writes this before or after the cross. He writes it after the cross. Before or after the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. After, before or after the substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf, where the sins of the world were judged on the cross, before or after that, listen carefully, he writes it after that, doesn't he? 
After the work of Christ on the cross, Paul spends the better part of three chapters making a case that mankind is condemned and in need of a Savior because of sin. Let it sink in. Now, in Romans chapter 4, well actually in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 31, one of the most incredible, wonderful theological passages in the New Testament, and several of the most incredible theological passages in the New Testament come from Romans, but this is one of them. He comes right out and says that justification, the imputation of righteousness to the the individual as a result of faith, justification is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It is not by works. So before we ever get to Romans chapter 4, before we ever get to Romans chapter 5, Paul has already made it clear that the only people who will be justified before God are those who have exercised faith. I point these out because you've got to get Romans in its order before chapter 5 will make sense and before chapter 6, 7, and 8 makes sense, but it's like tuning up that Porsche. Once it makes sense, it's going to make great sense, and no matter how well you think you understand these subjects now, you'll understand them better and in a more beautiful way when we finish. In chapter 4, do you recall, chapter 4 was an illustration of the principle that salvation or justification is by grace through faith apart from works. Abraham is the primary example in that case, and that's brilliant on the Apostle Paul's part to bring him up because he's the one that the Jew would have lifted up. We're going to get to heaven by following the pattern of Father Abraham. Well, then how was he saved? By grace through faith. And then just in case, to throw in a little bit for, for a good measure, he mentions one of the other great figures in Old Testament history, and that's David. But the primary example is Abraham, the secondary example is David. These are men who were saved by grace through faith. When we get into chapter 5, the chapter that I think is so critical in helping us to understand what's going on in the rest of the book of Romans, and actually even before that, we're introduced to a concept of federal headship. And we've spent quite a bit of time on this, but I want to illustrate it perhaps a different way today or at least with a different schematic. And I want you to follow me, if you will. The federal head, the two federal heads. And today, I, instead of doing it like we have, I'd like to illustrate them by circles. Two federal heads, or two representative heads, if you will. The first one that Paul mentions is Adam. Adam disobeyed, and therefore, death spread to all men. For Paul says, for all sinned, and we have to fill it in, when Adam sinned. We call him the federal head of the human race. So all are in Adam the moment that we're born. The moment we become alive. If you prefer to say we come alive at conception, then you've got to say the moment we were conceived, we were in Adam. Either way, Paul doesn't care in this chapter. He wants you to know that there never was a time that you were alive that you were not also dead spiritually. And that includes everybody who's ever lived. Now, Paul brings up a second representative head in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. That, of course, is Christ. Now, Paul has all this. Is, this is why you've got to follow the flow. Paul really doesn't have to say any more about how we get over that. He's already made it clear 
in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, that the only way that we're going to be justified is by grace through faith, right? We all agree with that. Everybody tracking with me? But Paul brings up a category of headship, representative headship, where Christ obeyed and life is introduced. Death in Adam, life in Christ. Death in Adam because of his disobedience, life in Christ because of his obedience. Now here's something I want you to see. When we, when we look at Romans chapter 5, we see that we, we die because of Adam's sin, singular. Remember that? Either from this time or from when you've studied Romans before. Sin in the singular. That sin is imputed to us before we ever get a shot at sinning. But now think about to where we've been. Paul has also taught us in 118 through 320 that we are condemned and we need a Savior because of Adam's sin? No, he doesn't start with that. He says we need a Savior because of our Sins, plural. So if we were to understand this in a logical, theological sequence, we would understand that from the first moment we were alive, we were condemned because of Adam's representative headship, because of Adam's sin, and then subsequent to that, because we're fallen creatures, and what do sinners do? Sin. Because we're fallen creatures, we commit sins, plural. It's, it's all part of the same package that ends up in death. And by that, the primary death we're talking about is spiritual death, although Paul makes it clear that physical death is in view as well. Because of Adam's sin, physical death entered into the human race. But right now I want to talk about spiritual death. One more time I've got to tell you. I've got to remind you. or I want you to remind yourself. When, did, when did, was this written in comparison to when the cross occurred? After. Okay. After. So, would it be consistent with Paul's message? And I don't care about theology that you've read in a book. I'm only talking about Paul's message tonight. Okay? We can, we can, we can uh, make this coherent with theology we've already learned later. But first we've got to see what Paul's saying. Is it consistent with Paul to say after the cross that sin is no longer an issue with regard to the gospel not according to Paul this is where I want you to think for a minute according to Paul Adam's sin is still an issue after the cross singular and our sins personal plural are an issue after the cross. Now, I'm just going by Paul. I'm not going by any systematic theology right now. Only by Paul. Yet he brings up this idea of, in Christ there's life. Paul has made it clear as to how we can be associated with Christ. And that, again, was by something you've heard all your Christian life, because you wouldn't be a Christian if you hadn't heard it, by grace. Through faith. So the bridge that takes us from death in Adam to life in Christ 
through the work of Christ on the cross is faith. And that's the only thing that's going to get you over here. So whereas all are identified with Christ in the beginning, there are some that are identified... I'm sorry, did I say Christ? I meant Adam. All are identified in Adam in the beginning. Some are going to be identified with Christ and life because of faith. But not all. Because all haven't exercised faith. You have some confusing phrases if you start in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Because in some places, Paul says, like verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man centered into the world and through death, and so death spread to all men. But then in other places, Paul uses the term many. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. He uses, he uses, he switches back in um, verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Wait a minute, Paul. Is it, some, is it many or is it everybody? Paul's using a particular style here that we need to understand before we'll, we'll, we'll really be able to go any further. He's using a style called diatribe. Now, in modern uses, usage, a diatribe is bitter and abusive speech. You've heard of that. People went on a diatribe against someone else. But in ancient times, diatribe was a dialogical form of teaching in which the teacher proceeds from knowledge to knowledge by means of question and answer with the students. Several books in the New Testament are characterized by various features of this diatribe style. They include the book of James and some of Paul's letters, including Romans and 2 Corinthians among others. One of the major distinctives of the New Testament use of diatribe is that the author of the respective book creates a dialogue in which he writes on both sides of the debate. This is particularly obvious in the use of rhetorical questions where the biblical author in Romans, of course it's the human authors, Paul, the divine author is the Holy Spirit, he guides the course of the argument by means of posing questions and then he answers the questions. Now, scholars have seen elements of diatribe in Romans chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 9, 11, and 14. The point is, he's been using this teaching style almost since the book began. What is the significance of that? Well, that's what he's doing, by the way, when he gets to chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? He asked these questions. He said, absolutely not. Remember that? Well, in Romans 6, 1, Paul responds to the absurdity that believers should continue to sin by answering, no, it, it won't be. Rather than consisting of the presentation of propositions, biblical books using features of diatribe present their arguments in a progressive way that moves from point to point, often in the course of disputing the views, the opposing views of other people. Here's the, here's the whole point why I bring this subject up. We must exercise caution, therefore, and how much weight is placed upon any particular statement, or I could say verse, without considering the larger context 
in which this part of the argument is developed. You, you can't take a single verse in isolation in Romans and pull it out and study that verse by itself and expect to understand what Paul's doing with this argument. Because this particular style of writing builds one thing upon another, upon another, and upon another. That's why if all you did was look at Romans 5 and see where he says sometimes the many and then sometimes the all, you wouldn't get what he's doing there. But if you had already studied the first part of Romans where he says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if you've already studied the, the Romans 3:21 through 31 that says the only way you're going to get over into this category is by faith, then, then we can go back and then attempt to understand this many and all based upon those two concepts that Paul has already set forth foundationally. I just urge you, try to listen the whole time. Don't, don't sleep for 30 minutes and then wake up at one statement and then, and then just grasp that because I know it's tough on Wednesday night and I applaud you for being here. And I know and I was sleepy all day today too. It's, it's difficult, but this is so beautiful that if you follow from start to finish, it's, it's going to be a fine-tuned piece of theology that will make so much sense and it will change the way you live your life. It's not just dry theology. Based upon what Paul's saying, he's, he's establishing a foundation for us in these first eight chapters, actually the first 11, that will be a foundation for living that cannot be shattered. So hang in there with me. So there, there are no contradictions there, but what I want to show you, you're either in, according to Paul, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There is no in-between. I probably should have drawn it a little bit different way, but I wanted to show you're either in this sphere or you're in this sphere. There's no theological limbo, and there is nobody that is in both spheres at the same time. That is a, that is a category that Paul does not allow for. Okay? Now, if you have that down, and I know, I know probably everybody did, but it, it doesn't hurt to, to swing back through it. If you have this down, if you understand, and hopefully you've admitted, that Paul wrote this after Jesus Christ died on the cross, so even after Jesus' work on the cross, Paul still considered not only sin, but sins, plural, to be an issue. Then we have to go back and we can understand Christ's work on the cross based upon this piece of data. You can't eliminate this piece of data and understand the atonement. The atonement was sufficient for all. This bridge that is built between Adam and Christ by the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient for everyone who has ever lived. It is complete in its scope and its purpose. But watch, it is efficient only for those who believe. The way theologians put it is the death of Christ on the cross was sufficient for all. It is efficient only for those who believe. The fact that people don't believe doesn't mean that it wasn't sufficient. That's their deficiency. But if you don't believe, it wasn't efficient for you. It did you no good that Christ died on the cross if you don't accept it, accept the work. Okay. In the study of Romans, a faulty understanding is almost a certainty if verses are taken in isolation, 
Romans must be studied in the order in which it was written, paying careful attention to the flow of Paul's argument. So he says after chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's saying, now you live over here. This is, this, is, this, is where, this is where you are positionally. His whole point in Romans 6, to boil it down in a nutshell, if this is where you are positionally, and he's going to make the case through the rest of Romans 6 by taking three steps forward and two steps back every time he does it, because he wants to circle around and make sure we've got it. Once you're over here positionally, Paul's saying, what in the world are you doing wanting to go back and hang out over here anymore? You don't, that's not where you live. That's not where you reside. You reside over here. Why are you going back to this life? In Romans chapter 6, Paul discusses the, the question or the, the idea that I can say no to sin. Romans chapter 7, he says, even though I can say no to sin, I oftentimes say yes. And if we leave it there, we'd be in a great dilemma. Because we would try to strive under our own power to, to say no to sin. And we, but that's Paul's dilemma in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. I have this internal conflict. Oh, who's going to save me from this wretched body that I'm in right now? And then in Romans chapter 8, he, he tells you who's going to rescue you from that. You know who it is? The Holy Spirit. So in Romans chapter 8, he lets us know that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can say no to sin. So watch that flow as we go through that. Since we now are in Christ... We've been joined together with Christ. It's now abnormal for us to sin. Sin's over here. Righteousness at living is over here. We do it all the time. But Paul wants us to know that it's abnormal when we do it. And if we do something that's abnormal, generally speaking, if we haven't suppressed our, sub, our conscious and subconscious with some sort of uh, psychological manipulation, we're going to feel bad about that because that's not who we are. We're functioning in a way that is not who we are anymore. You're starting to see where Paul's going with this. Then he tells us, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He's making a statement there. And in verse 4, we've been identified with Christ in his death. Now, we weren't there. It happened 2,000 years before we were born. But the moment that we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we're intimately identified with an event that took place 2,000 years ago. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's given us a clue right off as to why he's writing this. We need to walk. We need to live in consistently with who we are now. Then we studied that, that terrific passage in verse 5 last week. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, if we've been grown together with him, if we've been co-joined with him in the likeness of his death, and all that that entails, by the way, all the privileges that go along with being intimately united with Christ, one of which is we're sharing in that relationship with what, that, that exists between, that always exists between the Son and the Father. We're getting a little taste of that. The next time you think you've got nothing going for you, realize you are united to the person who created the universe. You share in the blessings that he shares in. Boy, we have, we have wonderful blessings. If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So, in, identifi in, a, in our identification with Christ, we died, we were buried, 
and we were, we were resurrected. Through our identification with Christ, we were buried with him. That speaks of the validity of death. The reason Jesus Christ had a spear thrust through his side and the reason he was put in a tomb and a stone was placed over it was to prove he was dead. Now, since we're identified with Christ in that, it's proof that we died to this. Now, the death that we're talking about is dying from over here. And, finally, just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we've also been raised from the dead. We're not given new life, though, to live under the headship of Adam. And when we sin, we are returning to our old identification. That doesn't mean that we're re-identified with Adam. Second major point I want you to make sure you leave here with today. Just because we sin... It doesn't mean that we've left this sphere and we've gone and now we live back over here. You, you can never go back in terms of position again, ever. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that it's so abnormal for you to do that, you're not going to enjoy it over here. Even, even if you died while functioning over here, even though you're not there positionally, you're still going to heaven because this identification is permanent. Verse 5, then, state, that we studied last time, it states a principle. Verses 6 and 7 explain the principle that is stated in verse 5. So Paul stresses by, by saying that we are, in his, in his statement of fact, that we're united with him in the likeness of his death. He's talking about the personal nature of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're intimately united with him. It's positional, but it's more than just positional. It's also personal. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, our non-meritorious and our non-meritorious acceptance of that work, we have a personal relationship with the infinite God of the universe. Now, in verse 6 and 7, knowing this, that our old self, literally the old man, was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, again, look, verse 5 is the statement of the principle Verses 6 and 7 are the explanation of what he just said. The old man, or old self, as it is translated in New American Standard, is life in Adam versus life in Christ. What Paul is calling, he's calling this the... The old man or the old self as opposed to the new self that we have in, in Jesus Christ. When a Gentile slave escaped from a Jewish owner and converted to Judaism by means of baptism, in Jewish legal theory, his or her new personhood made the slave freed from the former owner. Verses 6 and 7, and then verses 8 and 10 that we'll cover later on, respectively, elaborate the death and life aspects of our union with Christ. Our old self picks up the corporate identity that was first introduced in, in chapter 5, the two representative heads. John Stott put it this way, Not a part of me called my old sin nature, but the whole of me before I was converted is what is being alluded to in Romans chapter 6. Verse 6, when Paul refers, this is, I know it's, we got just a minute to go, but please hang with me on this. It may be something different for you, and you all like new, different things, right? You get those emails ready to go tomorrow, okay? But when Paul refers to the old man, 
or to the old self, in this passage, listen carefully, in this passage, he's not referring specifically to our old sin nature. He's referring to everything that we were in Adam. Now, look at the verse carefully. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. There are some expositors that do take that, the old term old self, to represent the Olson nature. But it's not likely that that's what Paul had in mind here. The Olson nature was not crucified with Christ. It, the Olson nature has not been killed or rendered inoperative by virtue of our faith. The Olson nature remains alive and well after our salvation. And it will until the day that we leave this body of corruption. As a result of our crucifixion with Christ, this intimate identification with Christ, this body of sin, or the whole person dominated by sin's power, the person that we were in Adam, that has been what has been done away with. Knowing this, that our old self, who we were in Adam, was crucified with him. That our body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. You died to this, to live over here, not over here. That's what Paul's saying. Now, he's setting all this up in principle. He's going to hit us with a lot of imperatives, commands about this, once he gets the whole principle set up. I'm not denying the existence of the old sin nature, by the way. I'm just saying in this passage, I mean, you'd be a fool to do that, but in this passage, this is not talking about the old sin nature was killed at the cross. It wasn't. It wasn't rendered inoperative at the cross. It's very operative. Um, it hasn't been done away. The, the Greek term katargeo means to render ineffective to the power or force of something. Now, that's why sometimes people will say the old sin nature was rendered ineffective, but it also means to invalidate, to abolish, to cause not to function, to cause to, to cease to exist, to cause to come to an end, to cause to become nothing, to put an end to. Why did I tell you all those? I wanted you to know that once you're over here, this is not you anymore. That has been killed. That is dead now. That's not who you are. And Paul uses a strong term to let us know that's not who we are. Now, if you died and you had unconfessed sin in your life, are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell? Based upon Paul so far in Romans. You're going to heaven. Because while you may function over here, that's not who you are. That's dead now. But only if you've accepted the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins by grace through faith. If you haven't, you're still over here. That's why Paul, in Ephesians 2, Colossians as well, will say, you were dead, this is before salvation, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's why Jesus tells the Pharisees, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. Singular. And then one one or two verses later it says, unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. Plural. So the, the, the primary basis for our condemnation was the fact that we're born dead, but we commit personal sins to show, to demonstrate that we're in, truly born dead. But the only reason, the only reason anybody ever goes to hell, the only reason anybody ever goes to hell is they refuse the gift of eternal life. That's it. So you can ask, does, does a person go to hell because he rejects Christ, or does a person go to hell because he's born a sinner and commits personal sins? Well, the reason he's condemned the reason he's had a problem is because he's born a sinner and commits personal sin. That is a problem. The reason he goes to hell is he doesn't appropriate the remedy. 
The death of Christ on the cross was sufficient for all, efficient only for those who believe. As a result, we need no longer be slaves to sin. Now, in verse 7, quickly, as further support for his conclusion, he actually cites a, possible, a popular rabbinic proverb or maxim to the effect that death severs the hold of sin on a person. Death ends that. You know, after you sin, I'm sorry, after you die, even the rabbis understood you don't sin anymore. I mean, that's the last time, you know, the last time you can malign someone, the last time you can commit adultery, it's got to be right before you die because you're not going to do it after you die. That body is not going to do those things anymore. And so Paul, being a rabbi, being very familiar with Jewish theology and the, the maximums of, of the rabbinic literature, pulls this into and, and, and adapts it for his pur- purposes. Positionally, we were freed from the grip of sin when we trusted Jesus Christ. Experientially, we will be free from the grip of sin when we receive our promotion to heaven. Paul is not telling us here that a believer will never sin again. That's not his point. His point is it's abnormal for you to sin again. But he's very well aware that you will, hence chapter 7. And then he's going to tell us how we can say no to sin in chapter 8. Thanks for hanging in there with me tonight. I hope it laid a better foundation for you, and we'll move on to verses 8 through 10 the next time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful presentation that you've made through your Holy Spirit and your servant Paul in the book of Romans. Father, we thank you that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died a death on the cross that is sufficient for all men to be saved, that no one was left behind. And Father, since... That death is not going to be going, the benefits of that death are not going to be applied to us until we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I do pray that if there's anyone here tonight who has never trusted Jesus Christ and, and been transferred to the headship of Christ, if they're still under the headship of Adam, I do pray that they would consider the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. I would pray that they would consider the fact that you loved us from eternity past enough to send your Son to die for us. And I also pray that for those of us who have, may we truly grasp the significance of the fact that not only are we under the headship of Christ, we are intimately united with Him. And may we appreciate all the blessing that that implies. Father, now as we go our way, I pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.